Hello and welcome to a Brave Space podcast with Dr. Catherine Meeks. I'm your host, Chelsea Glasgow, and of course, we're here with the lovely Dr. Meeks. How are you today? I am well, Chelsea. How are you? Excellent, excellent, excellent. Listen, I am so excited that we are continuing celebrating Women of First. And today we have the right Reverend Diana D. Akiyama here with us. How are you, uh, Bishop Diana? I'm great, Chelsea. Good to be with you and Dr. Meeks. It is so good to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing your time. And Chelsea, let's tell the audience that she's from Oregon. Okay. Well, yes, she is from Oregon. (laughs) Uh, I want to go ahead and get this conversation started by asking uh, a huge question, Bishop Diana, and that is how did you get here? You know, it's such an honor to be speaking with a woman of so many firsts. Um, Just in case our audience does not know us or is not aware, the right Reverend Diana D. Akiyama was the first Japanese American woman ordained to the Episcopal priesthood. And she is the first Asian American woman consecrated bishop in the Episcopal church. Additionally, she is the first bishop to be consecrated at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in over a century. Listen, she is a trailblazer for sure. So that is exactly why we are so excited to have her. Bishop Diana, we see the glory where you are, but tell us, what was the journey that brought you here? I know that you were born in Oregon and raised in a biracial home. So let's start there. So thank you for that factoid about Trinity Cathedral. I didn't know that. Um, You know, there's one other first I would add because it it means a lot to the folks here in the Diocese of Oregon, and that is the first um, native-born-to-Oregon bishop of uh, of this diocese. So my journey, um, my parents, you know, were interracial couple in the 50s. They got married maybe a year or two after the anti-miscegenation laws were um, put down. So, um, you know, even though it was no longer illegal to intermarry across races, the attitude and sentiment was alive and well. So um, they met and married at the Oregon coast. And after my birth, made a decision to move back to Hood River, where my dad's family um, was, where there was a sizable Japanese American community, because I wanted us to grow up in a community where we had a sense of belonging. And they could already tell, uh, based on the environment that we were in, that it was not going to be a welcoming environment for their children, probably because it was not very welcoming to um, either of them as a married couple. So the intent was really to make sure that my sisters and I grew up with a strong identity as Japanese American, even though um, our mother um, was not Japanese. And the tension um, was certainly lessened, but it is true that um, there there were clear moments when I knew that I was neither a full member of one community or the other. Um, but those of, the, of us who've been doing work around racial reconciliation for decades can remember the time when to be biracial was to have to choose. And so when I was in college and I was doing 
um, social activism around race and racism, I was, and I remember talking to the Asian American Student Union um, where I was a member, and the conversation around those few of us who were children of an interracial marriage was very much around choosing, having to choose. Are you either, you know, Asian or are you white? And that is entirely different now. But in, in my college days, that was the that was one of the kind of sticking points. And it was an uncomfortable space for me to be in because um, I knew, in fact, that as much as I identified as Japanese-American, I also was deeply influenced by my mother, who was not Japanese. So um, I sort of continued on that trajectory and, and eventually was so happy as more interracial kids um, would enter college and that population grew that they they started their own group. They're like, fine, we're not choosing, we're going to start our own group. And so um, their identity as, as biracial or multiracial um, college students was, I think, much more clear. Um, it was stronger and it really allowed them to have a voice around the fullness of their identity rather than having to choose Mm-hmm. It sounds like they made um, a conscious choice to take the courage to not choose, which is an option that they created. Um, how did that influence you? You know, by then I had um, I had graduated from college and was doing other things, and but it was um, to me it was a sign of of how we continue to grow and change and influence each other when we have these conversations about race. An identity. And um, it was a sign of progress. And it was a sign of, um, as, as you just said, a kind of courageous and bold move into a space that they were creating. It was, it didn't exist before. Um, but because of their clarity about who they were, as their racial identity, they created that space and, and moved into it. I love that. I love that. Well, can you catch us up on how you became the right Reverend Diana D. Akiyama, being the first Japanese American woman um, ordained to the Episcopal priesthood? Where where did you go from college to becoming the first? Um, so, when I graduated from college, I was at the time working as a drug and alcohol rehab counselor for an urban Indian. Um, alcohol awareness program and um, ended up that position got defunded because of um, the uh, Reagan being elected, quite frankly. And um, I ended up taking a job in Longview, Washington at a drug and alcohol center. And there was a, there were a couple of um, moments that happened when I was working as a counselor with clients where it became clear to me that I wanted to do something more. And maybe it was going on to become a psychotherapist. Maybe it was going on to um, ministry. And one of the galvanizing moments was sitting across a 14-year-old girl who was addicted to methamphetamines and getting to the root of where her where her hurt and pain came from. And she eventually shared with me that she had become pregnant. um, And the pastor of her church told her that she was damned forever for having an abortion. And, you know, there was a wound and um, who wouldn't 
turn to drugs if you were told by a pastor that you were damned forever. And I remember feeling such a strong um, sense of anger about the the damage that had been done to her by this person who was a clergy person. And, you know, I I lived like an hour and a half away from my home church where I grew up in Hood River. So I started driving back on the weekends to talk to the rector of my congregation about theology and faith and healing. And those conversations led to me eventually making the decision to start the process uh, for holy orders and um, ended up entering CDSP and graduating from there. Um, And, you know, at some point being told that when I was ordained to the priesthood, I would be the first Japanese American woman ordained to the priesthood. That was, um, you know, it's much like many of these things. Someone tells you, hey, did you know? Um, Because it certainly wasn't, I didn't start any of this thinking, I want to be the first. Um, I started this because um, I was listening to the Holy Spirit and um, trying to discern what the best use of my gifts and talents might be for, for the world. So the first part, um, in every instance, was a byproduct of, of a lot of work, um, a lot of it, you know, personal work on um, how it was that I thought that I needed to be prepared for the next thing that seemed to be placed in front of me. Um, you know, my, and my ministry has been very atypical. And so um, I think if you, if you apply the kind of standard formula um, for, and this kind of person who is the kind of person who discerns for the Episcopacy and this kind of person with this kind of portfolio is, you know, the best qualified person for that for that job. I mean, you can't tick off any of those boxes when you look at me and the, um, the entirety of my ministry. What I find interesting is that, um, because so much of my ministry has been in what I like to call the mission field of the unchurched, um, meaning higher education, that we, we find ourselves at a point in the life of the church today where, the experience that I bring to this job is exactly what we need because we are, um, we're at the jumping off point in, in so many of these areas that 30 years ago, we never thought we'd be, or if we thought we'd be here, I think we imagined we'd be better equipped. So, um, you know, to me, it, it is truly a Holy spirit sort of, um, event, my election. I mean, obviously I had to do a, uh, you know, as Brene Brown would say, a shit ton of work um, in terms of discernment <laughs> and getting myself ready. Um, not, and I don't mean that in terms of dusting off my um, resume. I mean in terms of deep, deep prayer and um, work with um, partners who are walking with me in this journey in order to even get to the point where I thought this was something I could be persuaded to do. Hmm. Wow. You know, Chelsea, I, I wanted to, I just made a um, a notation a second ago, Bishop Diana, when you were saying about the, the boxes that, you know, these are the best qualities to look for in somebody who's going to get this job or that job. And the thought went through my head is that the best 
qualified person is the one that God is selecting. And we don't always know who that person is going to be. And, and so it takes the kind of courage that you, that you have just been describing to keep being open to God's imagination and then saying yes to it, to give God the, the resources to make those selections from, you know, I, th- I think, I think that if, if I had to say there's, what is the one biggest deficit I think we have in the church, it would be, we don't have enough courage because we don't have the courage so much of the time that it takes to be willing to listen. Yeah. And there was, thank you for that. I mean, and it, what you're reminding me of is um, all the, the tears that were shed in my discernment process, because you're right, it takes courage. And, you know, where I sit now, um, I feel very, I feel very much um, persuaded that I have what this diocese and the church needs. But my bigger question is, does the church want it? So it's, it's one thing to say we're at a point in our in the Episcopal Church where we need a different kind of leader or innovative leaders or, you know, whatever adjective we're going to put in front of it. But really what I want to know is, does the church want it? Um, and I say that because, you know, we're at a time when we look at leadership in our church where we are seeing many more white women and people of color who are becoming elected to be bishops. But the system is still white male, make no mistake. And so the question of the acceptance of our authority, that's a huge question because there is no real template or roadmap for what that looks like or or what it ought to look like or what the system um, of the church writ large should um, be anticipating with one hopes, hopefulness and, um, and great energy and joy. But, you know, it's one thing to, to bring, um, we'll just use a word, an outsider into the center to lead. It's a whole other thing to actually shift the system to ensure that right. that person is successful. And I, I so agree with you. And I've heard from a, um, a fair number of women who've been elected, and particularly women of color, uh, elected uh, as bishops. And it seems as if there has been that that challenge of the diocese has elected this person and then down the road they found out they they had this person of color or f- that is female and they actually intend to exert their power mm-hmm. and and when they discovered that you you know yeah you you elected this person and gave them this mandate and so now they they're going to go do this work mm-hmm. it becomes a, a bit of a, a bigger challenge than perhaps people had discerned in the, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And how are we helping people um, kind of move courageously into that new space? Um, and, and one of my um, questions right now is really how is the Episcopal church um, helping bishops like myself um, move into that space successfully? The reason I ask that is because, you know, in the past when all the bishops were straight white men, um, the system was their system. The system was set up so that they would be successful. Everyone knew what the rules were and authority was fully conferred because of um, who they were. And now that we're shifting away from that and where authority is not fully conferred, it's sort of like, hmm, we'll wait and see. Um, And the system is not one that is of us 
and our culture or um, otherwise, what does success look like and where is the support for um, leaders out on, on, the, on a new point um, so that we're not kind of out there by ourselves on the edge of the system itself? It's just, it's, a, it's an entirely different space to be as a leader. And I don't, I don't have a sense that we are even really having much conversation about the, the depth of the dynamic that this, this is um, presenting to us as a, as a church. Mr. Diana, you, you've um, named and indicated that there needs to be more support. One of the phrases that I love that you used was, you know, of course, you got in the position of authority, but it's another thing to have people accept that authority. And then it's another thing to ask for people to support that authority. Um, what are the things that you are asking for from the leaders in the Episcopal Church that you believe can not only change the trajectory um, of, of your time, um, but others? So I think we need, to, um, we need to be much more nuanced and deft about how we're doing our racial reconciliation work. Um, you know, I am the bishop of a, of a very predominantly white um, diocese. And so the conversations around racial reconciliation need to be framed with language and approaches that allow people to keep front and center the goal of being unified and working together. And um, language that is divisive is unhelpful for all kinds of reasons we know because of where we are in our country right now. But I think in terms of the gospel message in particular, it's not helpful. And so how do we have these conversations as a diocese, as, as the larger church, in ways that build up individuals and communities so that they are stronger and more um, have more muscle tone to do the courageous work of reconciliation? The, the ways that we have... Um, what we have called leadership in the past is really um, just listening to the voices that are the most privileged and just allowing them to be the leader because that's the way the system is set up. So our questions around what it means to be a community of faith that is lifting up a different kind of leader isn't just about the leader they lift up. It's about who are you going to be? How are you going to exercise your leadership in this this new reality so that we're all successful together. Mm, I'm glad you said that. You know, the, my next question actually was, who is responsible for shifting this system? And I think you kind of just answered that, right? Like not everyone is responsible. Everyone is held accountable um, for playing a part of the system and shifting it. Would you say that to be correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that. The guarantee for nothing to work um, in this endeavor is to allow people to become passive consumers. Um, that then we're not going to change anything because it, it just becomes an objectified um, thing that we're not really engaging with any meaning or purpose to say nothing of, of faith. Yeah, you know, and, and I wanna just chime in for a second here, Chelsea, and say, that part of the reason why I wanted to have you 
be one of our guests just because of your clarity around all of this, Bishop Diana, number one. And number two, Audrey Lord has said, you can't expect to dismantle the master's systems with the master's tools. Right. So I think that we have got to be uh, able to, to, to see what the tools are because we can't, we keep trying to use the old tools to fix something that the old tools help to make. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that this interrogation of that, that kind of the, of what is it that we're doing and, and interrogating ourselves about how much willingness do we have to really let it all go and see what will emerge is so critical. And I just, I just love that you have brought that, that voice to this conversation in a way that I've not heard from many other places. I would, um, the other thing I would add is, you know, um, there are, there are some cynical comments. I know you've heard them too, that, well, now that the church is dying, falling apart, disintegrating, shrinking, now they're going to elect, you know, white women with people of color to be bishops. Um, and I do find that to be cynical. What, what it does say to me is if the church that was focused on becoming secure, materially secure is shrinking, what is happening in that shrinkage is creating a space for a new kind of, for a new kind of church. So it's not that we can let in those people on the edges because no one really wants the job anyway. What it is, is a call to leaders who have always wanted to think creatively and innovatively about how we can truly engage the work of transformation. And it's possible now because a space has been created as the church undergoes the transformation it's undergoing right now. That is such a beautiful reframing of, you know, that negative analysis or proclamation into something that's so much more energized. And and that's one of the places where we could really start with changing things is changing the ways in which we characterize things. And so I, I just, I'm so always talking about the way you do that and your your way of framing this and but the the best part about it is what i just said a minute ago is the absolute clarity that you have about this this way ahead some people just call it blunt (laughs) (laughs) well you know (laughs) well listen we are approaching um the end of this podcast but uh, Bishop Diana, I want to thank you so much for sharing the clarity that you have in this mental framework regarding um, racial healing and racial reconciliation. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you, Dr. Meeks, as always, for being here um, and supporting these conversations and providing a space for us to have these brave conversations. Uh, I think it was mentioned that there used to not be that space. And now with this reframing that we have from Bishop Diana, we can now see um, these, these spaces as an opportunity to win, as an opportunity to create change and as an opportunity to revive what people thought was lost um, and to make a new statement that invites everyone into the conversation. So thank you for having the courage to be here. Uh, Bishop Diana, do you have any final words or any way that our audience can connect with you outside of this podcast? Um, I can be easily found on our diocesan website, um, 
you can go to the diocese-oregon.org website and um, there's a chat comment form there if you want to reach out to me i'm happy to be in dialogue with anyone who would like to be thank you so much for all of this chelsea and dr meeks it's been great Absolutely. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure and our honor. Well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to a Brave Space Brave Space podcast with Dr. Meeks. Today we had uh, the right Reverend Diana D. Akiyama, and we were so happy um, to glean from her wisdom. Listen, if you want to stay connected to the Center for Racial Healing, please visit us on our website, www.centerforracialhealing.org. You can also stay connected with us on social media, um, on Facebook and on Instagram, Center for Racial Healing. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, remember to always tell the truth.